Hello and welcome to the Stuff I Heard podcast. This is your host, Joshua Peak. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Stuff I Heard podcast. And uh, today happens to be the 200th episode, 200 times that That's I've done this cool. crap, and I can't believe it's been 200 times. Um, if you're listening right now, everybody's in a weird craze about the coronavirus, and we're all going to die, and all this frustration. Um, we're not all going to die. I mean, some of you will. Sorry. It's just a fact. Wait, I guess technically we're all going to die. Well, you hear this sound a lot. You know, not to... Like- not to bring it all down. Oh, there's AMSMR, so people are into that kind of stuff. You can geek out about here in rubber gloves. Um, today is uh, the 18th, which is a Wednesday, the day after uh, St. Patty's Day. Um, I got a special guest here. This is Ron White. You want to say hey? Hey, what's up, everybody? Now, a lot of you going, Ron White, isn't that a comedian? No, it's not a comedian. This is, I mean, he is funny, but like, you know, no, if I'm you know him. not quite tater salad, though. He's, so. not, he's not tater salad, but he does have some pretty damn cool stories. Um, I met Ron a long time ago, and we've, you know, stayed in touch and lost touch and reconnected and all that fun stuff, you know, as people do. And, um, you know, we're having a chance to get together today, and I thought, hey, this wouldn't this be cool if I could get together with you for the 200th episode? Yeah, I think it's really cool. It's quite a privilege. I think it's awesome. Yeah, man. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you, man. It's good so <laughs> we were talking earlier about all kinds of fun stuff with Star Wars and, and all this this and that and, and, and histories of our families and all this good, groovy stuff, and I thought, wow, we're missing out on a lot of good content, and I hate to miss all that and then start over, but we kind of are. Um, one of the things that I thought was very interesting when I first met you was your history. I mean, the fact that you weren't from here and you lived a totally different life before ever coming here. And I thought, this is the story I kind of want to hear. This is the the yeah. background stuff that no one really knows. Yeah, well, people that have gotten to know me over the years here know that I, 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 I'm not from South Carolina, though I do claim South Carolina as my home state. And that's another story entirely, But because I've been here for over 30 years now. But... You know, I grew up on a sailboat that my mother and father designed and built from the ground up by their own two hands. And I was born onto that sailboat after it was launched and ended up sailing around the world for the majority of my youth life until I was 17, just before I was 17 years old and ran away from my dad, I think, uh, right before I turned 17. And I just was tired of the lifestyle. And sailing around the world is an incredible experience, but it's also some of the most terrifying experiences you can ever imagine. You know, it's not... It's well, this not, is way before computers and, you know, when, GPSs. When, we, when and, we started sailing around the world, we didn't have a navigation system like they have on... The big ships did, you know, if you have a big container ship or an uh, oiler or something which is traveling around, they have sat-nav. Yeah. Which puts them globally down to within seconds of their true position which we used to our advantage because we could always hail one of those ships if we wanted to v- confirm our navigation because we navigated with a sextant on charts, you know, sun and moon, stars. Mm-hmm. But um, but like you have no heads up of weather. You're basically just kind of looking little, out. We and- have, you have a radio direction finder, which will pick up a shortwave radio uh, from all around the world, and so you can triangulate your position with by knowing what direction the signal's coming from. You can spot out where your relative position is to a broadcast that you know on the map. And then when you hone in on another one and find its direction, you can find the intersect plots mm-hmm. on a chart, you know, so that, which will give you very close coordinates to where you are. But we so most would, kids, uh, most kids your age were learning their ABCs. You're learning how to navigate. Yeah, my dad, my dad had me navigating with a sextant by the time I was six years old. And um, I had... 
I had to read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica set. Uh, was one of my projects that my dad made me do from A to Z, the entire leather-bound books from the 70s. And it was a, kind of a monotonous reading. Some of it's really incredible, but I finished my high school equivalently, Josh, I think when I was like 11 years old. And so then my dad was insistent that I start going on to like a collegiate level of uh, homeschooling because he was a professor also in mathematics. Really? Yeah, he, he taught he taught up in uh, Chicago. And um, when they first escaped Hungary in 1956, which was my parents' uh, origins, as you've met my mother before. So yeah. That's where the accent comes from, like a Zsa, Zsa Gabor kind of thing. And, um, but they, my mom was a uh, revolutionist in Hungary. She and my father was a star athlete, was the fastest man in the world in 10,000-meter racing single-man canoe. Racing canoe, not to be confused with the uh, canoe that we go cruising around yeah. in here in the creeks and stuff, but rather a racing canoe, which is an A-frame hull. Looks like, a, if you're looking at it, it looks like a V, mm-hmm. very narrow, foot and a half wide and about 17 and a half feet long. And you try and balance in that is a feat in its own right because you're sitting there. It's very light wood, very, yeah. very light construction, very fast. Was that similar to the boats that you, you see teams, like row, like rowing teams in? If you were to take one of those rowing boats, it's very similar to that in a lot of aspects. And down to the last details, they're double-enders. They're pointed yeah. on both ends. And the difference being is that those boats are built much heavier and much bigger. When you bring that racing canoe down, a single-man canoe, 17 feet long, you sit in the you don't sit in the uh, boat. You're actually kneeling if you're left-handed my dad was a lefty so his right knee is forward and you're putting your right foot into a stirrup uh-huh. and your left knee is underneath you in the center balance into a cup and your foot hits a stopping point behind you so you're so not actually on a seat you're supporting yourself with you're your legs supporting yourself up with your leg wow if you're if you're uh if you're a left-handed canoeer you'll be on your left knee is it one of those deals where it's got the like rows on each side, or no, a single row a, both, side, paddle, both ways? You have a paddle, and the Olympic canoeing man. Uh, most of it's phased out. The race that my father was champion in, um, and undefeated in his career, was uh, the ten thousand meter race, and that's that's a grueling thing. So I think that's where my dad's interest in the water came from, in his life had to be, but uh, he's on a postage stamp as well. Really? Yeah, my, my father's on a Hungarian uh, postage stamp. What's your dad's name? Uh, Vice Zoltan. You know. Oh, that sounds like a like a Flash Gordon character. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, named, I am Vice I, Zoltan. That's my son's middle name, <laughs> Gary and Zoltan. That sounds so cool. All the kid, you know, he thought he'd be teased in school over that. You know, yeah. And, this, and instead of being teased in school, all the kids were uh, into this. Uh, anime and stuff and they said oh your name is so cool it yeah. sounds like a superhero it or does something. sound like a you know? like a marvel <laughs> character almost it's pretty cool it's a very common hungarian name just like uh, attila yeah would be very common also right but um back to the canoeing you know that when you're in that canoe the hard part of that i've raced with my dad in a canoe like that at young age we raced together here in the states a few times and um the hard part is learning your balance oh yeah and you're sure. in motion forward yeah much easier but the way you extend like if you're a canoeer and you're racing like that, your left arm will reach the top of the paddle that you're holding. You know, if you're right-handed, you're putting your left hand on the uh, handle. Yeah. But it fits over the top of it. The wood is very, very thin, long, and then your hand actually is extended right next to the blade itself. 
because it was made of such a light material so you could lift and stroke yeah. fast. You have the weight, you wear yourself out. Oh, yeah. But the result in that is that it was so fragile, you had to use your hand at the connecting point as support, and you would pull with your hand along that blade. My dad averaged 75 strokes per minute Shit. for 10,000 meters and also would arrive across the finishing line and would immediately go unconscious and fall into the water. They had to have swimmers that were, to go on, rescue him. were, on, were standing by to immediately get him out of the water. He would drown because he just he spent and he just went like that and he was just nonstop workhorse. Couldn't, you couldn't stop him. It's like it was just unbelievable. He would just burn out all of his energy. All the energy going Probably into that thing. Probably holding his breath in that it's, last it's, little bit well, and everything. You, you, it's just, I don't know how he did it. You know, Jeez. I just know that uh, it's, it's really, it's, it was really a, a lot of drive. And so I remember uh, my dad's nowhere near as tall as me. You know, it wasn't, you know, and I'm 6'4", I'm so I was a lot of my life, I was his teenager, I was already taller than him. But I couldn't, even with my long, lanky reach, I could never put my arms around my father who, being maybe like 5'11", 5'10", was an average Hungarian height for a male at the time, maybe. Mm-hmm. A tall, I was a tall, pretty tall male. But very muscular. But muscular, barrel-chested, and just yeah. solid. He was like a hunk of hunk to the girls. That's how my mom fell in love with him. My mom was on the Hungarian kayak team. Really? And so she, yeah, my mom's a kayaker. And so when World War II happened, my father was a Holocaust survivor, and... Everyone in his family was killed except for what I understand to be my grandfather, his father, Mm -hmm. and one brother. Everyone else is dead. It was just wiped out. And um, when the Germans started their solution there, Hungary, unfortunately, was aligned with the Germans by, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In World Mm -hmm. War I, the Hungarians had their prince and princess that were assassinated, I think, in Sarajevo, mm. you know, and that's what started World War I, you know, and so the Germans immediately came into line with their Austrian-Hungarian counterparts, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Austria-Germanic, and so it naturally brought Germany into it, and that's how you have the access there. But um, mm. in World War II, Hungary was still aligned with the Germans, unfortunately, there might not have been an impassioned uh, desire on the Hungarians. In fact, it was not to be supportive of Hitler's ideas. You know, it was like it was just a natural alliance because of their bloodlines. Yeah. At that point, being intermingled enough to and being so up. close, it's like, what do we do? Yeah, do we die here because we're so close? Or? Well, the Germans they were they were occupying Budapest and Hungary and stuff, and they of course it was really important strategically for the Germans because you're reaching all the way into Romania, which didn't exist until World War One ended. That was Hungary also. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Romanians like to claim this. hate to tell you that, guys, who are fans of Dracula, but if you think that Dracula is somehow Romanian, nope, you need to check up on that because actually I think he's Turkish. <laughs> so it's like he happened to have loyalty to the Hungarians, and Hungary was that part of the world. Is that true that it's, it's also based on Vlad the Impaler? You know, Vlad is a, Vlad is a, you, that is him, you know, and, and Vlad, I think, is a, from what I've read about and, and in Hungary been able to learn about it and confirm from what their oldest stories are about uh, that individual was that he was a Turk of birth who was loyal to 
the Hungarians aligned with them and actually defended Hungary's interest in the Muslim invasion of Hungary, which took place. And uh, you know, in Europe, I don't remember the years. I'm, I'm not always that good on remembering yeah. years off the top of my head, but historically, it's a really interesting event because it formed even the Christianity's um, rootage because Hungary's about 1,100 years old as a nation, as a Christian nation. And, uh, but by the time it became a Christian nation, it was one of the uh, Hun clan leaders who was, uh, I think, forefather, I mean, a later generation from Attila himself, maybe, mm. is that he finally said, you know what, the stuff that uh, Attila and them are doing, it's not going to work. These countries are going to unify against us and we're going to eventually get wiped out. So they sent an entourage to Rome. This, uh, the first king of Hungary is uh, St. Stephen. He's a saint. And um, King Istvan sends, an, uh, his father sends an entourage to Rome requesting a crown for Hungary in a truce and to educate his son to become the first king of Hungary as a Christian king. Hmm. The first entourage from Rome was sent as a response with a crown, but they sent the wrong crown. And at that time, Istvan's father immediately recognized that it wasn't a crown like the other crowns he had uh, seen, heard of. It wasn't domed. You know, a king's crown is never an open ring mm-hmm. like you see in the movies. It's a domed crown which has a cross on the top of the dome, and this is to signify that you are a king amongst men, but you answer to the king of kings. Yeah. I, watching, there's a, the show on uh, Netflix, The Crown, where they talk about they believe that the crown was ordained by God and, and the direct descendant of God in that sense, and that they were the direct line of God. Granted, he was granted the authority by God you know, to be king. You know? Which you hear about in the you know the formulation of our own country, how they wanted to separate you know the church and state for that main purpose, because they were like, we don't want to fall into the same monarchy type system. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's that it's that fear of you know saying you know I am the all knowing, you're going to bow to me and and it, you know it, it is a way to subdue your people and to lead your people, but it's also well, not great. <laughs> yeah, really, I, I would agree 100%, you know, because I've been to a lot of the places where the kings have been and all that and all the royalty and the blue bloods. Fortunately, yeah. I don't have any in that of that in my family, even if I'm a pure-blood Hungarian, um, which is, doesn't really mean much in a way. But the the thing is, this really neat, it plays all together politically in the story of my family because this really revolves around politics. And so Hungary, the destiny of that nation becomes over a 1, thousand, eleven 1, hundred years ago, that the first crown that was sent over was the wrong kind of crown. And so the barbarian chieftain has all the priests killed. Because he feels disrespected. And sends one of them back with the crown and says, next time, send the real thing. Mm-hmm. By that time, Rome, at that time, church is still split. No, maybe it's just unified. Remember, the Christian church was Constantinople. Yeah. And Rome. Yeah. That was the church that the apostles started. The, uh, when yeah, it was like 400 years after the, after the death of Christ, Constantinople Jeff, converted. and Yes, Constantinople becomes the first Christian emperor of Rome, and then yeah. it's like there's a very good book that you can read if you can get hold of it. It's called Martyrs of the Colosseum, and it is a collection of the writings of the Roman poets uh, over the last 300 years of the history of the Roman Empire as it revolved around the blood pit. And... 
It's an incredible book and gives you a huge perspective if you're interested in Christianity's history. There you will find probably one of the most incredible uh, books ever put together, which show just how Christianity took over the pagan world. Mm. People have a misconception and think that Christians were fed to the lions, when in fact um, the Roman poets say differ, that they attempted to kill Christians in front of lions, but the people who were filling that stadium in Rome were transfixed when they suddenly were in, uh, in the presence and witnessing firsthand the power of the real God because those lions would lay prone at the feet of the Christians who when led into the pit would sing prayer and then the lions would lay at their feet and attack the soldiers. The only successful way according to those uh, writings that Christians were truly killed in that period of time was by the sword. They tried boiling them in cauldrons of oil. They tried many different methods and miracle after miracle happened to it resulting in even a Roman emperor converting to hmm. Christianity because they saw what a real God's power was. And so it's like it's the basis of faith in Christianity is to understand that history and to understand just how did Christianity really take over the entire world. Rome was critical. And um, it was uh, the most powerful force, the Roman Empire. They were directly involved with Christ's crucifixion, and yet they succumbed to the very same religion of the God that they killed. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing thing, you know, and it's like, so the book is, I'm not a, you'd think I was like uh, trying to promote him or something, but it's an old book, and it's really well done. And it's called Martyrs of the Colosseum. It's still available online. I think on like Amazon or something. You can still get hold of it. I just recently saw a copy. They're still making them. We just watched a thing the other night. Uh, Disney Plus also, I guess Disney owns National Geographic. And part of their online service is they have a series by National Geographic. They did a thing about uh, the tomb that supposedly Jesus is buried in. And it's um, there was a renovation project that was involved with the fact that this tomb was built supposedly by Constantinople during the time and that they go through the history of it and they, they believe that where Christ was buried, that the, um, the, people, the people of the time were so pissed off that he was even revered as a Messiah that they built a Athenia uh, temple. temple on top of it. And when he converted, he had the temple removed and all of the land removed around it. But basically he just took a mountain of a monument and the mountain itself had everything removed except for the actual tomb, and then built this monument thing on top of it to house to house the tomb of Christ. And this thing has been around for you know eighteen hundred years, whatever it is, sixteen hundred years. The tomb is made of marble, and the tomb is actually falling apart. So, you know, there was a big thing about how they wanted to replenish this tomb. They didn't want the tomb to fall apart. They have this. You know, religious. There's there's like four or five different religious groups in this area that all claim that they have rights to this area. They all have to meet on a council and approve of anything that's done. And yeah. finally, these these scientists were able to convince them this needs to be done, or this is going to fall apart right here. I mean, we can we can do the work, but we kind of need time to do it, and we're going to be respectful and blah, blah blah. So they do the work, and and in the meanwhile, there's a question about whether this is the actual tomb or if it's in another place, and so. There's controversy about where the actual place is, but it's an interesting view of the levels at which Constantinople was willing to go, the amount of work that had to be done, 
manpower mm. and resources and everything else to get so this done. Rome was Rome was brutal, but very genius. Yeah, it's incredible what the feats they could do. They everything we're using down to our surgical instruments today. Yeah, uh, if you ever get to go to uh, the Pompeii exhibit that's touring around the world, um, Rome, mm. Pompeii, all this stuff, they find full sets of surgical tools. They are exactly the same as the ones that are used to this day. Mm. But they were made by Romans. Plumbing fixtures, Aquincum, Hungary, the entire town's rubble, but they've excavated it, and everything in the plumbing remained perfect. Mm. So you got all this hot and cold running water sources. Every single home yeah. had hot and cold water. To me, and, one of the most fascinating <laughs> things they did was build the way they built roads that are still standing today. Yeah, well, it's like I've been <laughs> it's on a lot of those roads. You can still, when, you, when you're in Italy today, man, you get on some of this cobblestone. Some of that cobblestone goes back to Rome, and um, we, had, we, we had, we, uh, with the sailboat, we encountered a lot of ancient sites, and we mm-hmm. were actually pulled out of the water for repairs one time on an ancient Phoenician railway on the island of Ibiza, the mm. old method of pulling a ship out of the water by putting a track down into the water. Vessels aligned over that track, a single rail, Mm-hmm. And then a jackass cranks a winch or slaves, whatever he used at the power at the time, cranks this big winch. Something probably looks like the Conan movie when he's yeah. grinding that mill around, you know, and he's like, you're cranking around like that. And as it cranks, it's cranking in the chain. And the vessel is slowly pulled out of the water from its bow straight up onto the land. And as it comes out, they put supportive blocks underneath it, build a framework underneath the vessel to support it. While it's fully out of the water. Then when you're done, you cut loose and it slides down the track while people are holding ropes on either side to guide the vessel in, you know. So it's like it's amazing what their uh, technological skills were. Uh, As a kid, up. traveling to all these places, did you pick up on languages or do you um, remember I, any I, of I, that? Uh, well, yeah, some of it. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, not now. It's like uh, so many years later, it's like I did learn we were stuck in Ibiza in the Balearic Islands uh, just inside from Gibraltar off Spain. I think Ibiza's maybe like 90 miles or something, if I remember off the top of my head, more or less maybe, um, from the inner area of Barcelona and Alicante mm. on the eastern coast of Mediterranean Spain. So we were trapped, we were cap- We were rescued at sea after a, a very serious uh, event, which almost the first time my family was almost killed at sea, um, and the vessel was almost uh, lost in a bad storm off Algiers, Africa. And we were rescued by a British freighter, the Port of Plymouth, which was able to save our vessel. And they had to tow us because they've agreed to rescue us at sea. The thing is, if they're going to save your vessel, they have to, by international law, they have to take and put your vessel in tow. If they can't repair it, they will tow you to the closest ported harbor that can handle such repair. Oh, so they had to bypass their normal shipping route, this container ship named oh, wow. the uh, City of Plymouth from Britain. It was a big container ship at sea that rescued us. That was a horrendous experience. But, you know, you go on that ship, you know, and they, they towed us all the way to Ibiza. And in Ibiza, we had to spend there just over a year waiting for our turn to get pulled out of the water. Now, Mick Jagger and all these big rock stars and movie stars and, you know, it's like uh, Salvador Dali. Everybody has homes in Ibiza because it was the big party island. The discos there are legendary, and to this day, like if you're into DJs and people doing that kind of music, dance music, um, you're not even considered a big name in the business unless you've headlined at Ibiza, Mm. where some of the clubs cost 
300 $500 a person just to get in. Mm. And you can dance on top of sharks and walls with sharks swimming around you. Wow. I mean, incredible discos like you wouldn't even believe. But we were stuck on that island, you know, and the, and the other downside of it was terrible plumbing. So that place stunk like you would not believe. But we got on that. But you're kind of forced to immerse yourself in the culture. As a a kid there, you know, being suddenly dropped into it, you know, not speaking Spanish. And so we didn't realize what was up. And I thought that I was learning to speak Spanish. But what I was learning to speak is uh, as unique as the liquor they produce only on that island. And uh, it's called Ibiza. So you have a liquor called uh, Hierbas Ibizenka. If you can get hold of that, you. Definitely, if you like drinking, you're going to want to have some of that. Um, but it's really good. It's like a uh, southern comfort, mm-hmm. comparatively almost, except they put a unique stock of spices gathered from that island, and they put that into the barrel when they're making that liquor. And then when you put it in the bottle, they have to stock that spices in there. When you drink it, it's like really flavorful. But that language base is called Ibisenken. And it is a mix between the Mediterranean nations and cultures which visited that island. The island. Oh, yeah. So you, got so you have the Moroccan Portuguese, influence, yeah. the African thing coming into there. Italian, so Ibis Greek. Is all sorts of stuff. And so it sounds hodgepodge. Hispanic. It's a hodgepodge. But Ibisankin is, well, as soon as I got off the island, I was speaking a little survival. Yeah. Uh, E.B. Sankin as a kid. Very Latin, side. very big Latin influence. Big, big Latin influence. Yeah. And then when you get, and then when you start getting over to, um, the other islands as we sailed on beyond that and started going into Corsica and Sardinia and heading over towards uh, Sicily and doing the Italian islands and all through the coast of Italy and heading over towards Greece and all that sailing, you know, we were almost killed again and were rescued by the U.S. Navy after we left Ibiza. So, I mean, learning how to sail... Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something. Uh, we, my dad might have built a beautiful sailing yacht, 80-foot catch, 43 metric tons. If you bought one today, it would cost you a couple million dollars for sure to try and get on something like that. And that was my home, you know, which in some ways is very spoiled and lavish, at least enough so that that's how we met the mafia in Italy and were employed by the mafia, and that's how we made our money for some time, working for the uh, the boss of the mafia in a... Sicily, you know, you, you, that's a story in itself. But the, the amazing thing, man, talking about the politics. So, how did he get from this, from a canoeer to? Well, how I did now have a ship? Well, that's not, that's great. You just said that, man, because you know, so I was about to back wait, this up a little bit, here. you know, because so the boats, you know, the canoe is the connection to the boats. But my father was a champion canoeist, yeah. And so the climate after World War II, the Germans get defeated. Thank God, yeah. You know, and um, as the Germans get defeated. In came the people that liberated Hungary from the Germans. And we all know what engaged in history. I'm sure some of the uh, people listening right now heard of the Cold War. You know, the Cold War was basically just a territorial grab from the Eastern Front. The Russians were severely uh, attacked by Hitler and lost a lot of Russian blood. I think they they said land. 11 million Russians died well, during World War II. Huge amount. I mean, it was, it was more like, than any other I mean, country. Stalingrad. Yeah. That's I mean that's, it was Stalingrad. I think is it was like very famous. I mean it's like defending the motherland. Yeah. My God, the female uh, sniper. I can't remember her name, but there's a very famous. They made Russian a movie hero. about her. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, she, like, but she's she's real. Yeah. And uh, but 
you know, so the Russians pushed the Germans back from their side. And they advanced while Romania, I mentioned earlier, was important to the Germans, the access to that area, which is now Romania, because of the Ploesti oil refineries. And the Germans needed fuel to fuel their war machine. And that was their fuel source. Mm. And so Hitler controlled the Ploesti field. And the Allies were bombing Hungary severely and bombing Ploesti from um, Africa after they defeated Rommel with Patton. So they were able to gain that territory. And from Libya, they were launching airstrikes over to uh, Budapest and over to Ploesti. And, um, what but, is that now today? I mean, it's not uh, Budapest that, today, is it? It's, uh, Budapest? Yeah. I mean, Budapest is still there. Is it still city. considered it's, uh, Budapest? Oh, my God, yes. It's beautiful. Yeah, Hungary, Hungary's, uh, Hungary's its own nation, but only after they got away from the Russians. Yeah. Because what happens is, is the end of World War II ends with the Russians, of course, pushing the Germans out, defeating them, and then the Russians decided to do what I think you can do legally, and that's how territories change throughout history. If you're a nation and you get attacked by another nation, mm-hmm. and they come into your territory, and there are uh, wars ensuing, as the Germans did when they advanced and then went into Russia, the Russians now are attacking and pushing back the Germans and Hitler's war machine starts falling down and they're pushing him back, pushing him back, pushing him back and advancing into territories that aren't even their country anymore as they're fighting actively against the German war machine. So they go all the way into Hungary, Yugoslavia, all these places, Poland, everything that was involved with the Germans taking by force and everything that the Russians got, they did what is legal to do and they decided, well, we were attacked now we're going to keep it. Restitution, basically. Well, they, they pushed them back. The aggressor was pushed yeah. all the way back. And whatever you're in, you push them back to that point like a game of football. Yeah. You know, get your yardage in and that's it. Yeah. You know? And so that's how so Russians wow. come in. And that's when everything went bad for Hungary. Because when the Russians came in, people don't understand politically, the Germans were allies of the Huns. And so they didn't treat the Huns poorly per se. Now, the stories that I heard from my family about what the Russians did is completely different. The Russians, in comparison, if you got Russian descendant, if you're a Russian descendant, you know, I don't want to offend you, but reality is reality. And a lot of people can talk about my own nation uh, of origin too, Huns, because we were brutal killers. So, yeah, we were murderous thugs that raped and pillaged throughout Europe and Christians, uh, said prayers, God save us from the arrows of the Huns through much of Christian Europe for hundreds of years. So we know that that's a history. You know, and I'm, So I'm not trying to put down Russians, but the truth of the matter is, is the Russians came in, take over, make the Eastern Iron Curtain, the Cold War starts, and once you're inside that Iron Curtain, there's no such thing as freedom. There's It's stifling, like like control. Not even religion is really permitted because religion gives someone hope. And so they look down on everything like that. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty sad. But while that happened in history, you know, my parents were kids during World War II, and my father, being a Hungarian Jew, was hidden by a sympathetic Catholic priest and disguised as an altar boy. Now, I went to church there one time as a young man with my mother, and um, my mother said, you know, this is the church where your father had to pretend he was an altar boy. My father took sacrament as a Jew. 
So he became an atheist that hated God. And I think that was his undoing. Mm -hmm. He never could understand how something so evil could come in and destroy an entire culture and an entire family and everyone they knew it existed. But it happened, even in Hungary. So he survives. And as a young man growing up, he is able to get into canoeing. And he becomes really an incredible champion. And that canoeing right there made him a star athlete, even in a communist country. But he was tired of it. But my mom, she experienced her end of it too. And she's the one that caused problems for our family, which ultimately led us to America before long before I was born. And, um, and that is that my mother wrote a freedom manifesto against the KGB <laughs> in 1956. Oh, wow. In 1956, before the Hungarian Revolution broke out, the Soviets occupy everywhere. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's boot and rifle yeah. occupation. You're in line. And uh, so, and waiting in line, too, if you want to get a loaf of bread or a pair of shoes. So my Toilet parents, paper. Toilet paper. <laughs> my, my parents, you know what they did? Uh, I said, let me get this right. You know, it's amazing because my parents, their first job together as a couple was smuggling. Not yeah. drugs, but it was equivalent because if you were caught doing it, you'd be in big trouble. Hungary is... I'm trying to get this right. Yeah, they, in Hungary, they didn't have uh, access to um, children's clothing, I think. After, uh, during the occupation, it was such a shortage of children's clothing, you could make a lot of money with children's clothing in Budapest. But in, and we had lots of, uh, what was it? I think it was coffee. Yeah, my mom, yeah, I think it's coffee. I'm pretty sure it's coffee that we had access to coffee. And uh, I think the Russians are tea drinkers at the time. Lots of tea. But I also liked coffee, but they didn't have it. So they would go and smuggle one up to Russia on the train, mm -hmm. and then suitcases filled. And then they'd sell it like hotcakes as soon as they got off the train, make a big amount of money right there, immediately go and buy children's clothing everywhere they could because they had an industry there supporting them. And from there, take it back to Budapest, and sell it there and make huge profits, but smuggling it the whole way because you weren't allowed to do it, you know. And um, so they, in that early time there, my mom made a big mistake and wrote a freedom manifesto demanding a different treatment, that we're, we're Hungarians, we don't want the Soviet communist crap on us. And so my parents were arrested and interrogated, and an interrogation at that time in the Soviet empire was not something small. You know, you have a gulag you could be sent to. Well, there, I'm sure sense. there's no rules back then either. It's like, whatever there's, we got to do. You know, in Budapest, there's a couple of walls still up to this day where you can go see where Russians and Germans uh, were executing people by gunfire, putting you up against a wall. Mm -hmm. And you can look at that wall, and it's got thousands and thousands of pockmarked bullet holes, you know, where people were executed right there in that one thing right in the middle of town. You walk by it every day. People don't even pay attention to it. Jeez. But my mom, she was warned. Basically, uh, Miss, you know, they told her, Erzsébet, you know, think about your husband, think about your family. You do something like this, we're willing to forgive you, but if something like this were to ever happen again, you know, what about the future? Your husband's a famous star. You're throwing your life away. It was enough to scare the heck out of my father, too. So when the Hungarians at this time were getting really tired of being suffering like they were under the Russians, and so it was the Hungarians that led the first revolt, against the Soviet Union. And so freedom fighters, starting with a few children that snagged the hand grenades 
off of a couple of Russian soldiers that were standing on the street and took and threw themselves bodily into a group of soldiers with a pulled pin off a Russian grenade. Mm -hmm. Started the revolution. Wow. Kids. And so then they took pots and pans and laid them in the street upside down so that the Russian tanks thought they were mines and had to stop. And that's how it ensued. And so for three days, Budapest was free from Soviet control. And during that three-day revolution, my father decided, because they had just got back from a trip from smuggling from Russia, and they got back to Hungary, went to, they, they go into prison for what my mom does, and when mm -hmm. they get out of prison, they go see a relative up in the mountains right there next to Budapest, overlooking the whole plains next to the city. And right up there is when the family first saw, after the three-day revolution had started, and they were freed from prison. Because the second time they went to prison was because they decided they were going to escape with the money they had made on a smuggling trip. And they tried to get over the border, but were captured because my father tripped a flare trap. Mm. And Russian soldiers with German shepherds came in right on them and captured them at the border. And they were the second time they were arrested wasn't for writing the political thing, but because their name was already in the books, I guess. Now they're in big trouble. So they were put into political prison. Now, and he's supposed to be a big star at this point. Yes, but now so the world been, knows who he is. Well, he's, he's not. He's not gone onto the global field. He's uh, you know like that. You know, so much as like the world had a lot of things going on right there, and the press yeah. isn't getting in on this. Yeah, the press was paying more attention to a missile crisis that oh, happened yeah. at the same time in the Middle East, and uh, I think in the nineteen fifties, I think it was a Middle Eastern something going on, or. I don't know what the distraction was, but there was a very big political climate of tension between the Soviet Union, the United States, and other regions in the world. And so when the Huns took over Budapest, the freedom fighters, mm -hmm. they captured the radio station. And when they did that, they broadcast, this is Hungarians, this is Hungary. We need the world's help. We're fighting against the Soviets. We want our freedom. Nobody dare make a move. And my parents are up on this mountaintop and some family's property next to their house. And in the distance, they could see the tank divisions lining mm. up from the Russians. Yeah. And so that three-day revolution was a bunch of diddly squat. Yeah. Because there comes divisions that were ready to... Just wipe them out. And yeah. that's exactly what happened. So my father immediately made the decision, seeing that ahead of the storm, the wave is going to crash. You've got a tidal wave coming in on the beach. You know it's going to hit. And so they evacuate. And they start heading south, and they made it to the border. It was the three-day run. You know, you remember, uh, you remember in the Lord of the Rings when they try and rescue the hobbits from the control of the orcs. Yeah, from Is Isengard. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, they they went and run after them. That's when the Fellowship first split up, and Frodo and Sam take the ring quest, and the others go back to pursue the other two hobbits and try and rescue them. The um, well. That was my family's running, similar to that, run for freedom. My mother and father, with virtually nothing on their back, a little bit of money, make a move for the border of Yugoslavia. Three days they're running to the point of exhaustion and just spent. My father is like a world-class athlete, so, and my mom's an athlete too, so they're not weak people. But after the third day... They come through this section of woods in the early part of the morning, and it's barely light outside, and 
there's fog laid out just like you see here in South Carolina on the fields. You know, that heavy fog. Like this morning. Late, like this morning, perfectly. Yeah. You know, over the fields, you're coming through the trees, and in the distance, they see a farmhouse in the earliest part of the light of dawn, starting to turn the skies blue and gray, lighting up. And through that fog, they see this house, and they approach the house, and suddenly a man comes out of the house with a shotgun and levels it at my father, and in Hungarian says to my father, what the hell are you doing on my land? And my father fell to his knees and started to weep. And he said to my mom, I can't run anymore. It's three days, I'm exhausted. We can't go anymore and we haven't even made it out of Hungary. And the farmer lowered his shotgun and said, relax, Hungarian. This is Yugoslavia. You made it. Cool. They had made it across, and that's, you know, see, like what I'm saying, when World War I ends, Hungary was severely punished. Yeah. Former lands that were Hungary mm-hmm. were split apart and became other places as a punishment to the Austro-Hungarians for their part in the, uh, in the war, starting the war. You know, so it's like they, um, they, were made it, they made it over the border, and it was that incident which allowed my parents to immigrate to this country And I'm a big fan of immigration, which I think is being, in many ways, I think it's okay for me to say it's uh, bastardized. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's like um, our idea of immigration today, I think, is a scary thing because this is a beautiful country. And people that were born here, like myself, I think, are sometimes guilty of not realizing how privileged we are in this country with all of our own mistakes that we've made as a nation that we obviously have to inherit, even if we didn't do those sins. Yeah. We still have a great nation, which has grown exponentially beyond any place in the world. And it's still in the infant stages of its own it's existence. A very young nation, My yeah. God, you know, I know so. the world looks at us and goes, "God, these these they idiots say, are still trying to figure it out." Yeah, you know, so they, they can say all they want to with you know. that, but these idiots figured out a lot of other stuff. Yeah, that changed the world. So I can I can argue a lot of good things, and you can say some bad things too. And of course, you know, that's what I'm admitting to. But my parents. They didn't get to just come to America. That's not how it works. They were political refugees who were going to be put to death as revolutionists, and they were freed from the political prison during the three-day revolution. They were awaiting execution. My mother was probably raped in that prison by Russians. I know that she gave birth to my sister on a refugee camp, but she had contracted a disease called rubella. Rubella does not affect the mother during the pregnancy as it does the fetus, and the fetus will be born crippled and will not be able to survive. So the child was born, my sister, um, she was born and would not survive what happened. And it was because of that that the United States at the time wouldn't allow my parents to immigrate to the United States because they would be bringing a crippled child with them. So they were denied it. I think that's the basis why they were denied immigrating here to the U.S., but they were staying on a refugee camp on a Yugoslavian island called Rob. I think it's R-A-A-B is the spelling of that. So when they did the three the three day run, they ran with their daughter, with your sister. No, 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 no. My mother was my mother was just out of prison, so she was probably didn't even know she was pregnant. Okay, so she had like you know, okay. So I suspect, and I'm not, my mom's going to say no, that didn't happen. But my mom has also admitted to me at times that there are some very dark chapters about what happened to them in that point of time. 
the price that they paid yeah. for freedom. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, a, it's, 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 you, you, who couldn't be sympathetic to someone who just wants to live their life without having an oppressor breathe down your neck? Right. It's akin to slavery. Oh, yeah. You know, so uh, the fact of the matter is, is that my parents, they make it over there, and the Yugoslavians, they don't want the Hungarians all over there, similar to the way the Muslims were coming out of Syria and coming in mass to Hungary, and Hungary detained them. Hungary knows good and well what it means to have a huge influx of people from any one part of the world yeah. suddenly stomp onto your territory. They'll change the very demographic nature of your history. They're doing that in France right now. You know, they're, all over the world we're seeing yeah. some stuff happen. But um, the fact of the matter is when my parents, they had to, they were forced onto this island with all the Hungarians who had escaped, which were a lot of good bit of Hungarians that escaped over to that part of the border into Yugoslavia. And they were put on this refugee camp, basically a prison, called Rob, an island. And there they awaited their fate, and they were trying to get immigration status as refugees, political refugees, to the United States. They were turned down. I think it was Australia that accepted my family, or New Zealand. But there was a woman that knew my mother from the, from the uh, camp and was sympathetic to my mother. She also knew that my mother was pregnant with rubella and was going to give birth to a crippled child. So... She knew that the child was going to die, and there should not be no reason whatsoever why the U.S. would deny their immigration due to a child that's not going to be a burden upon the country, but it's not going to even live. Yeah. So she had connections to an ambassador, to a senator or something, that woman, and she contacted, and they were able to actually put their case, argued for them by someone behind the lines on the American side. And said, you're denying this family for no reason. You need to help them out. They're good people. The guy's a champion athlete, and he happens to have a child which is going to die in the process. And so they were accepted to the U.S. and my parents in 1957, I think, or 58, arrived in the United States. They were citizens before my brother was born. Uh, they settled down in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, they had to learn American history, learn the language. My father insisted that my brother and I weren't even taught Hungarian when we were born, that we were going to be raised 100% as Americans. He even changed our family name because uh, he wanted us to be American. Yeah. So, And we were raised as patriotic Americans, Chicago, Illinois, where he got this dream to build a sailboat, live the American dream. And I tell you what, he became very successful here in the country. He was uh, doing working as a professor. He was a very, very successful tool and die, draftsman, mechanical engineer. And so he's very educated, very aggressive, you know, about what he wants to get done. And so he became successful at a time in this country that, though turbulent in many ways, socially and politically, yeah. was a time where he could just make it. And so I understand well, in Chicago, immigrants. was a big boom. I mean, there's a, a lot boom, of revolution again, coming out there. And again, it was also a lot, of, a lot of gang activity. Oh, yeah. You know, Al Capone was big during that time. Yeah. yeah. And so the, back then, I think uh, the... Chicago police were referred to as the Blue Angels with great sarcasm because they were so corrupt. And, uh, of course, you had Serpico in New York City. You know. My mom was born outside of that area in 54 uh, in Joliet, which is where their big prison was. Oh, yeah. Joliet's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's like... Uh, but I think but they, they her family time. was from, like, Georgia and Alabama where, you know, it was farm areas and they wanted to have opportunities, so they moved to Chicago to try and... Mm-hmm you know, get where the jobs were. Yeah. And they both went through the depression as kids. Um, their parents had died when they were young and 
to keep themselves out of orphanages and stuff like that, all of the kids band together and they all got jobs in factories right. in Chicago because back then there was no child labor laws. So they all went to work there and then they met each other up there working. <laughs> My grandfather famously has stories about meeting Al Capone in person. He's got some stories about hiding bodies and he he didn't tell any of these stories until he got very senile and with dementia and he starts telling these stories like it's like commonplace he's like oh remember that time i was like whoa, whoa, whoa shh stop talking stop talking about this stuff papa but like you know he he would say stuff randomly to me or my brother is like you know this is some stuff that is really shocking but he was like yeah this is how we made it and he's like you know because of that i was able to to eventually buy my first tractor and we moved back home and buy some land and I started my business doing, you know, construction. And But he's like, I had to do these favors for people. And it was Truth like, and nail, man. This is just how it was. Yeah, he's like, this is just how it was. You know, it's that blue collar, you know, whatever you got to do kind of mentality, mm-hmm. you know. But you know, my parents came into that too, you know, and it's like uh, they, they had this big dream of being free in America. It was like, I mean, opportunity. children. I mean, my yeah. mom witnessed as a child backing up into like the history of it. I mean, it's like, Cowboys and Indians, the Amer- the Hungarians were so fascinated with the American, na- the Native American. They were Native American to Hungarians at that time in World War II. Children like my mother, who was uh, who spent much of the war in a uh, farming village far south of Budapest near Andrea Bulaton, a lake which is today one of the biggest vacation lakes in the region. And there, she happened to stay at this farm with a cousin in Andrade, which was a little farming community with its own church in a valley in a mountain range. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. I've been there. And um, one day, you know, I was raised by my mom telling me stories about how she witnessed a dogfight in World War II as a child. My mom was sitting there one afternoon. I don't know what time of day. I'll say afternoon just for the story, you know. But... She's walking down the hill with some friends when suddenly they hear these engines scream and this fighter aircraft prop job flies right over her head, right over the ridge of the mountain, low altitude, German fighter. Guns blazing at that fighter and what comes right behind it a second later, a big, uh, beautiful silver and red aircraft. Shot that fighter down into the farmland. That pilot didn't make it, that German. And there's plane screaming over and a dogfight ensues. There's aircraft everywhere and my parents, my, my mother, not my father, but just my mom, uh, and the other part of the village that she lived in are watching this dogfight you know, take place right above their heads. Now, I was raised being told stories about that from a child. My mom told me about fighter planes and my brother ends up joining the Air Force, I think in large part, just like his young, he's 10 years older than me. And I remember, you know, my brother spent a lot of time Building model aircraft. Mm-hmm. Big fan of model aircraft. World War II aviation. Had to be an influence from my parents telling stories. And my mom specifically witnessing that. And I never put two and two together until one day I'm sitting here in Florence watching several years ago. Was that uh, um, one of the shows on the History Channel? Mm-hmm. Dogfights. And they put this story out. I'm sitting there. I suddenly sit up in bed like, What? And it says, August 1944, Lake Bulaton, Hungary. The Tuskegee Airmen are coming home from escorting bombers to attack the Ploeschi Fields oil refineries. And on their way back, they're shortcutting to return to their bases in Italy. 
and they're flying over Lake Bulletin on that summer day when they engaged in the biggest dogfight of their history as a squadron. Wow. And they're coming across the lake, 50 Tuskegee Airmen heading towards Italy, and they're engaged by an equal, if not more, amount of German fighters, and they meet over the lake, and they break off into groups of 10 and 12 fighters engaging each other with their wingmen in tow. Mm. And my mother witnessed the Tuskegee Airmen wow. dogfight on that day and witnessed a Tuskegee Airmen take his kill at that dogfight. I still don't know who that is, but when I saw that, I was unbelievable. And so I excitedly went and got my mom up. I started recording that thing, and I got my mom up because she had just moved over here for other reasons to join me from Los Angeles at the time. And I think this was probably around 2000, 1999, 2000, 2000 I think is when my mom came over here because of what I was getting involved with there. You know, but she um, wakes up, and I said, Mom, I got something to show you. And I got to see something which very few times you get to see with people. You're fortunate when you do. It's like uh, being a puppeteer in life. It's like yeah. occasionally you put something dangled like bait in front of a fish. And so there my mom sits down, and I put this thing on the television. And the guy introduces once again. You know, he's like, you know, it's on the DVR is what it was. I think that's how I got that. I was recording episodes of Dogfight. So I play it for my mom, and I said, look at this. She watches it. She hears that. Then she looks at what's happening, and her eyes suddenly lit up. She knew exactly what I was talking about. And she looked at me, and she says, do you remember the story? I said, of course I do, Mom. Why do you think I just woke you up at <laughs> 2 in the morning you know, to, to, to go see this? You know? yeah. But uh, that's exactly so. I mean, it's like it's really neat. The circles, life is, I've found, at least it's worked that way with my family. It's worked that way with me time and time again, these big circles. You do these incredible things that take you far from home and it circles back around to your initial starting point. And somewhere along that circle, you start touching other people, other places, but significant things happen. Things which are incredible, the stuff that dreams are made of. Yeah, I, I, I've had so many circles happen in my life which are almost... They are nothing short of like saying miraculous as a definition. How could someone experience what I experienced? I've ha I, could, I don't know how to write a book. There's so much for me to try and put into words about things that I've seen that were truly incredible at a time when the world's gone through lots of changes and growing up in it. And then ending up here in South Carolina, growing up on the sailboat, traveling around the world for years and years as part of a global community. I was raised that way to understand that, you know, I'm proud American. Our sailboat has an American flag on it. And now we're criminals because we work for the mafia. And um, that's a pretty funny thing, you know, going back to Italy. But but we really did. Yeah. It's like uh, I used to be right next to the boss all the time. I played with this kid, you know. It's like, uh, and we had a language barrier because I had no idea of Italian. This kid didn't speak English, so we were doing a lot of... Did you at the time understand the weight of the situation? The what? The weight of the situation. Of the, of the mafia? Yeah. 
I didn't comprehend what the mafia was. I didn't really know what the mafia was. I, I really, All you knew it was is your dad had a job and you were just hanging well, you out. Know, you, you know, you want me, you know what? I'm going to skip to that. Let's get that out. Because that's, you know, if I can focus, sorry, sorry to your listening audience here, whoever's listening. You know, now, right now, they're going, holy crap. It's like, there's just a lot of chaos here. And it's like, uh, maybe one day I'll be able to, if anyone has a question or something, maybe I'll be able to explain in depth about that. But the, the story of how I went to Pompeii is involving the mafia. And so we had just arrived after being rescued the second time at sea by a British freighter, uh, by the U.S. Navy, mm-hmm. uh, DD-978, Spruance-class destroyer, USS Stump, rescued my family at sea from death. We were without water for three days in the summer with no wind, no engine, no power, no way to call for help. And we were dehydrating and coming close to our ruin when the U.S. Navy came across us and saved the day. So we get resupplied and we make it towards Italy. And when we arrive in Palermo, Sicily, we docked Escapade, which was a gorgeous sailboat. I mean, electric blue. She was stunning. She was a gorgeous boat. And she commanded attention. Whenever she went anywhere, man, it was like looking at a sleek sailing yacht. I mean, people noticed her. She's got an American flag hanging off her stern. And on the back of the deckhouse, in the rear of the vessel, it said, Our Escapade, Chicago, Illinois, USA. That's where she was built launched and registered to so when the vessel was built there you know and it has that name on the back of it there we are at this dock in palermo this pier right up at the seawall in the harbor when a dark colored sedan pulls up on the side on the uh walkway like a big giant sidewalk next to the pier Mm -hmm. out of stone you know and it comes up there and these two guys in suits get out the two guys in suits walk up and they ask to speak to the captain of the vessel. Because they see this American flag and they see Chicago, Illinois written on the stern is what it was all about. Mm-hmm. They got, my dad comes up, you know, on deck, you know, and he's like, hey, how can I help you? You know, and they said, well, well you know, well, what family are you with? Mm. You see your boat here, you know, from Chicago, you know, and they say, so who, so who are you? And he said, my father, he must have known what was going on right off the bat. Because what he said, oh, you know, we're just coming back to see the old country. We're just having fun. It's nothing, you know, we're nobody. Mm-hmm. Well, we left Palermo and start going through some other ports heading towards Naples. By the time we made it to Naples, over a few months period, we were engaged by the same vehicle and the same men again and again, trying to gain information about us. Until when we got to Naples... Those two men, they came with a different thing. They said, hey, Capitan, our boss would like to meet you. He would like to invite you and your family to his estate. And he gave my father map coordinates for a harbor, which turned out to have a castle villa on top of this beautiful mountain right there in the and this is all pre-internet, so they're probably doing some research to find out who your dad is, and they're no, like, they, they don't even know who he is. It's, it's hard like, to do that kind of research. You're like, a, who the heck is so this guy a, even connected yeah, to? Yeah, well, it's just Chicago, Illinois. It's just, it's just a mafia. Yeah, it's I mean, phones connection. were around. You could make phone calls and ask, but everybody there would be like, yeah, I mean, I don't really know. You know, well, it's like this mystery person. But, yeah, but the thing was is that they wanted the boat. Yeah, now, they weren't going to steal it from us. 
Right, it's opportunity. But, they, but it's an opportunity for a higher reason than we thought possible, and we never knew uh, what it would turn out to be grace because we weren't smuggling drugs and we weren't killing people and we weren't burying bodies at sea. What happened was is this guy invites my, my brother had already left the boat sometime earlier in Ibiza and returned when he turned 18 to the U.S. where he joins the Air Force. And it's just me and my father and mother, you know, the three of us doing the rest of the adventures together and then just me and my dad. Um, but by that time, it was the three of us. And we get to Naples and this people come back up and they, they invite us, you know, and my boss wants to meet you, you know, and your family. He'd like to invite you as his guest to his home. It's a very great privilege, you know, blah, 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 whatever the way they were saying it. Like, I'm trying to sound all Guido or something. I don't know. But, yeah. but it's like, uh, they, they make it over there and we are given coordinates, map coordinates, to where to go to on a chart, you know, and it's like, uh, and we sail there. When we arrive, you're coming up into this natural bay harbor on a volcanic beach, black sand, you know, and a lot of Italian beaches are there. red sand, gray sand, black sand, depending upon what volcano. This one happened to be Vesuvius, which created the mm-hmm. sands on this beach. And um, But I had no idea of that. I didn't even know what Pompeii was at that point in my life, really. You know, but I might have, but it just wasn't that big a deal to me, you know. At any rate, um, we arrive at this place as guests, and what they do is they we anchored the vessel underneath this beautiful mansion, which is a former castle or something, on top of this several hundred, like three or four hundred yard high rock peak right there. And it's like this pinnacle of a, of a castle villa. And they have this winding road that would reach the top difficultly as you drive up there slowly. Mm-hmm. So it's defendable. And then you also have, you know, these guys everywhere with machine guns and suits. Everyone, in fact, that I saw, my mom and dad were wearing what sailors wear, which is generally like if you went on a camping trip and you only brought three changes of clothing, you know, you're going to wear those things over and over and over again as you wash them by hand and you're, you just yeah. look salty. And I mean, I'll tell you what, you know, you're like, if anyone's seen the movie The Boat, Das Boot, mm-hmm. the way those German soldiers looked when they got off that submarine and they stepped onto that yacht that was resupplying them secretly in Spain. And they were all had a lavish banquet laid out for them, and they were all dressed in suits. And these guys come off the ship, and they've never had a shower in a month. Well, we weren't that way. We had showers. But the fact of the matter was is that we just looked salty. We looked like we were rough cut. Mm-hmm. Wearing shorts, I was barefoot. My mom wore flip-flops. My dad wore flip-flops, T-shirt, shorts. T-shirt, shorts. I don't think I even wore a shirt when I went up to his house. And my mom, same way dressed, just normally a female. She's not bare, but, I mean, she's just dressed like you're living on a sailboat sailing, you know. And when we get up there, there's hundreds of people. There's a party in daylight. And it's everyone's wearing formal clothing, except for one man and his son, and his wife, who were dressed completely casual. And it became obvious that that was his place. And everyone there was like, uh, I mean, seriously, formally dressed. So what what did they want y'all to, to move? What they wanted us to move was him. Really? Amazing. The guy, because of his position there, had a difficult time going on vacation. Oh. Right there in Italy, intending to his affairs and feeling safe. So what I ended up doing is we ended up he ended up hiring our vessel like a charter 
to be his personal vacation tour bus along the coast of Italy and the Italian islands while we were escorted by two cigarettes with machine guns mounted on their decks. Cigarettes are, sh- are other ships. I'm uh, just letting no, the audience c- know. Cigarettes are, you remember, everyone yeah. know, remember gun that boats. show Miami Vice? Yeah, gunboats. Yeah. Well, it's, not a, it's not a gunboat. <laughs> they're, they're racing boats, right? It's, it's a speed boat. Yeah. You see, they're like 80 to 100 feet long with yeah. like three or four inline engines, gas engines, and they go really fast, and you see them brightly colored paints and all stuff. And Miami so Vice is in the beginning. Security's walking or Kojak. cruising around you. Remember Tully 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 Yeah. He had. Uh, he had a uh, yellow cigarette down, I remember, in uh, Florida when I was a kid. I saw it one time in, in, on uh, the Intercoastal Waterway. Yeah. A yellow one that said Kojak down the side of it, you know, because he was a big Kojak star, you know. But um, so we're there, and these two, uh, and we take these people on trip, and the boy, what we got is a tour of Italy. Oh, yeah. He brought his own, uh, his wife did the cooking. They brought their own food supplies to make sure he wasn't poisoned. Yeah. They took our family. We were their guests. They were our guests on board the vessel, and we were paid very well, and it financed my family's life uh, to continue doing that without having to be answering to anyone else financially. And so we get to see incredible things, old Nazi gun emplacements on the, on the coast of Italy that are still there at the time. You know, we swam to it from where we dropped anchor. He said, I got something to show you. You want to see a gun? You know, it's like go in there and there's a big 88 guarding the Strait of Medina. Wow. You know, on this rock shelf carved out of the, into a cavern with this big swastika carved in stone right into the wall of the cave behind the gun. How many years did that last? Uh, I don't know. If it's, I don't know if it's still there or not. No, I mean the being his escort. How, how long did that go on? And what is being his escort? I don't know. We do some weeks. Yeah. Of, uh, you know, just here and there, you know, it's like taking them, you know, it's like, but we went island hopping all through uh, um, the coast of Italy, island hopping through the, the Ioli Islands, which are Lipari, Stromboli, Volcano, um, and that that was, all those places were, then you got Capri, you know, and it's like all these places were incredible adventures, you know, it's just like yeah. a child man going into that, but the neat thing was sailing around on a boat with guys and machine guns all around you like you're somebody important. Yeah. One of the nights, probably the scariest thing that I ever remember about the mafia dude and really settled in what these people are about, that there was like criminal, mm-hmm. was that, you know, at sea, there's no such thing as a ship with no lights on. At night, you know ship just goes in blacked out. It's like, yeah, because you're well, worried about crashing into each other. and There's a lot of reasons. Yeah. You, and it's all about crashing and yeah. other vessels having a thing to know where you are and, and you know, and, and where what direction you're headed by your navigational lights. And if red, you don't have lights light. on, you're seen as a pirate, basically. <clears throat> something, something's wrong. Something's up. Right, and you're in danger. So one night we're sailing, and we were told where to sail. We were told what heading to sail to after we left one of the places we had visited with this family. And we sail out, and it's in the dark, and then suddenly, because it was a dark ship, there was this big freighter that we suddenly see out of nowhere. It wasn't lit up. It was just waiting at anchor. And he was greeted by one of the cigarettes who came and motored up to our vessel, which was a very rare event. They didn't disturb us. Yeah. They just made sure no one came near our sailboat as they hung back several hundred yards. Mm-hmm. And so it's like um, one of the vessels comes up and it takes embark. He gets on there and they embark over this freighter in the dark that we suddenly see towering over us. 100 yards away from where we dropped anchor, there's a big ship sitting in darkness. That just doesn't happen. Not a single light on board. 
And so I'm sure for your there. dad, this had to be like really troubling of well, no, what I the hell my, have I got my family I involved my, in? I think my dad was the kind of player, man, that uh, he was just kind of digging it. Uh, I, I, he must have. I mean, he didn't, uh, if he was annoyed, like, my, we had our own weapons on board. I mean, we, yeah. Escapade was an armed vessel. But I'm sure like he's thinking probably there was a benefit in the fact that well, suddenly money's money. not a problem. And I'm sure he liked the, I'm sure it's he liked kind of a cool deal like to be hanging with somebody who's a big shot. Yeah. yeah. But also yeah. there's the thing of. Okay, I got my wife and kid here too, so. But you know, you're guaranteed that hey, we just want you know this is a great opportunity for my family. I can see how the mob guy would have approached him. Yeah, and said, look, you know, this is an opportunity for me to be able to have some time off with my family, something in my line of work that I don't really get to do without having to worry about stuff. But think about if you were him. After a couple weeks, you're thinking, okay, there's got to be a way out of this. How do we get out of this? When well, you th- when you think he's probably it could have been possible but as, a, as a child, I don't think I was aware of it. You know, being a young yeah. kid, you know, it's like I really wasn't aware of it. You know, ten years old, eleven years old, something like that. There's a joke yeah. about you know, not to derail this, but there's a joke about uh, Hitler about you know Hitler had to have a best friend who's you know just happened to be his best friend who's you know I think it was that woman. There's like the guy. Like just imagine if Hitler had some dude he likes to hang out with, maybe you know grill on the weekends or whatever, and. He's like, you know, I'm going to get involved in this. And he's like, you're going to what? He's like, you kind of still want to be friends with him, but at the same time, you're like, mm, maybe I, I need to find a way out of this. Yeah, it's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of similarity there from that perspective because it would be a fear factor. Yeah. I, I'm sure that that had to weigh in, too. I'm sure that my dad didn't go in with the confidence, you know, thinking that, oh, you know, wait, here you are with your yacht and suddenly you're amongst the mafia, which you really have no pull over. Yeah. But you were flapping your lips when you first got to Italy and said, oh, yeah, we're just coming back to the old. But he country. wasn't a dumb guy. You're, you know, no, you're talking about smart. all the stuff your dad had done. Yeah. And, and, well, no, and he, was, he was smart. But the thing is, he was, he, he was arrogantly smart sometimes, too, and it was his peril. Yeah. Which lashed out at us many times through our travels. Right. And caused us great difficulties. So it's hereditary. You know, and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's obviously so, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, I do look like my dad. It's nurture you know? versus nature and yeah, it's like, there's a little know, bit of both. My son looks like me and my daughter looks like me, except she's beautiful. Uh, but um, the fact of the matter is, is that, um, so we met the mafia like that and it was a very privileged way to meet them. And then towards the end of our vacation, I remember Pompeii, the Italian, the mafia boss asked me, so, so Ronnie, he calls me Ronnie, what would you like to do here in Italy more than anything? What would you like to see? I'd like to show you whatever you'd like to see. And so I said, you know, I, by that time, it, uh, Pompeii was the thing. By that time, it got somehow the conversation had turned. How old were you about then? I think I was about 11, 10, or 10 le- almost 11 years old, okay. maybe. Around 11. And um, I think that would have been right. You know, I was like, well, well, no, probably around 1980, right after 1980, maybe the beginning of 1981 when this transpired. We were rescued by the USS Dumpin in 1980 on her shakedown Mediterranean voyage. She captured a Soviet submarine underneath us that was hiding. That's what the incredible bonus was about our rescue at sea. Holy crap. Yeah, she. Uh, the Cold War was constantly the U.S. Navy changing Russian subs. Wherever they encountered them in the world, they would hound them. The Russians had a new weapon, a silent sub, that was chased around in the Mediterranean in 1980 by... This destroyer, the USS Stump, that could do really fast speeds and it tracked Russian submarine. It was a new sonar contact, a signature they hadn't heard before. Mm-hmm. But they lost that sub. During that day when we were rescued, those days occasionally you would see the tower of the mast of this Navy ship on the horizon and it would disappear over the horizon. How the world was ever perceived as being flat, for any flat earthers, is a joke because when you're at sea and you get away from land and the second you have a real pair of binoculars in your hand 
and you're looking for the horizon, it's amazing that nothing is flat. And you can even see whatever target you're advancing upon on the horizon at night slowly materialize over the curve of the Earth as it reveals itself, meaning the top of the bridge as it's heading towards you. You'll see the running light on the top of that mast, 250 feet in the air maybe. You'll see that first. And then 15 minutes later, you see another light underneath that show up. And then you can start identifying what kind of a ship it is you see over there. I can't imagine the just like because it's so different than my life. And, and I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are like, holy crap, what a different life. You know, just just to put it in perspective, I think at, at around 11 years old was when uh, Chicken McNuggets became invented for me. <laughs> so, so for me, my big claim to fame at 11 years old was I got really fat that year because my mom, my mom bought the uh, Stouffer's chicken nuggets that you could cook in the uh, little toaster oven, and so we got uh, illegal cable, and That's I would funny. I would watch illegal cable and eat chicken nuggets at home until I would gorge myself, and I went from being I used to be called uh, they used to call me uh, bird because I used to eat they said as little as a bird, and my mom actually took me to the doctor. Because she was concerned that I wasn't eating enough to stay alive, and he's like, "He looks fine. He'll be fine. He'll get. He'll, oh, yeah. he'll, he'll go into it." And and chicken nuggets got invented, and suddenly I was wearing husky pants. So totally different life, right? Totally different life. <coughs> A lot of people right now are listening to this and thinking, I, "I'm just trying to wrap my head around the fact of, okay, we're going to be on the ship and we're going to travel across this ocean." That yeah. way. <laughs> well, you know what? There was a good side to it. You also. know, you know, there, another uh, bonus was I never had to cut grass. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I never knew what a lawnmower was, I don't think. Your tours were a little different. You know, they are all boat, you know, ship-related. Um, yeah, just really hard work. Yeah. Amazing. It's like totally different. Can you imagine, you know, what the difference is, I think, the biggest difference about growing up the way I did traveling is that imagine going out on a camper trip. You go from campground to campground with a mobile, with a, what do you call them, an RV? RV. Yeah. So if you were to go with a 50-foot RV... They're only so wide, maybe 15, 16 feet yeah. you know, of living space inside. Right. Most. Escapade was 15 feet at its widest point. She was a double ender like a canoe. Imagine that, like a racing canoe. She was designed that way. Mm. And so she loses territory, real estate, really quick from the front to the back. And it gets wide in the middle towards the stern. It gets the widest point, which was 15 feet. You know, So when we were uh, doing that... It's like going in an RV, and imagine going in an RV, and you're going to go from here, and you want to drive all the way down historic Route 66 from Chicago, Illinois, all the way down to the uh, Santa Monica Pier where Route 66 ends. Mm -hmm. Drive out to the edge of the pier and walk out from your car and go right on the pier. And that's Route 66 right there. So if you were to do that, now imagine you're not able to get out of your RV. You're stuck. During the whole trip. Yeah. And for a large, if you're sailing while you're for a large sea, part of your journey, your you scenery is you just water. It. It's like it's like you're, you're right. Yeah. And so it's incredible. You see, and believe me, what's really neat is that people think that the the water would get boring. Let me tell you, it's a incredible jungle. The ocean, it's so teeming with life. There's so many things to see, day and night. The things I've seen on sea, and then you can also go to space when you're sailing. People don't realize that. It's probably well, once there's no light and all you see is the stars. The only place you can ever experience what it's like to be a person standing in the middle of a three-dimensional galaxy of stars was on our maiden voyage when I was a really young child. We were halfway between Bermuda and the Azores, heading across to Europe. And after a week out of Bermuda, we're out in the North Atlantic 
en route to Hortifael, one of the Azorian Islands, and we're still a week and a half or more away from that. And no wind one night. No wind. It was, I think, a summer night or, a, you know, um, it was comfortable. It wasn't really cold or nothing. But it's not a cloud in the sky, not a breath of wind. The entire Milky Way and everything just in its glory over you. Every single star. And in fact, you can see at that period of time satellites with your naked eye. Yeah. When you're out there, there's well, no Well, Sputnik light was source, visible, apparently, by the no naked eye. No light source. Yeah. And you see, all you have to do is look at one heavenly body and fixate on it for a second, and suddenly your peripheral vision picks out, peripheral vision being really important on boats, you start developing that. Because if you look at something, you don't see it, a source of light. Mm-hmm. But if you look two inches from the horizon to the left or right of it, then your peripheral vision will acknowledge the light, and then you can fixate on that light source, what it was you saw from the side but um, when you're looking up to heavens you look at a star and it's your peripheral vision that'll suddenly reveal satellites heavenly bodies that aren't stale aren't still they're just a shiny reflection of light going across in one direction across the uh, your field of vision and then you'll see another one in an intersect course at a different altitude or something farther away dimmer you see one that's brighter, and it's just one's reflecting off the sun. They're not making their own natural light source, so they're just reflecting uh, whatever you know hitting them. Yeah. But we would see that. And then that night, I'll never forget it, not a breath of wind, and the Atlantic Ocean became flat like glass. There was not a sound. All of our sails were hanging limp. And we were, I was laying on top of the deckhouse, looking sideways at the horizon when I suddenly realized what I was looking at. And so I sat up and I saw every single star in the heavens reflecting on the water without so much as a ripple. It was like we were on glass. And I remember I said to my brother, I said, wow, this is what it means to be an astronaut. This is what it's like to go to space. Hmm. And then for all intents and purposes, man, that was the closest I would ever make in my life to going there, but it was a very similar experience without a doubt because you could not see the horizon. It was just a dark globe. I talked to my kids about that when we, we took a trip up to New York and, you know, we did the, um, the, the, the Staten Island, uh, tour where they, they walk you through the, the rights of, you know, people coming to America would go through, they would have to be, you know, brought in and asked about their history, their health, they look at their health, and they'd send people back and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and I said, can you imagine coming to the country because life, you left everything behind somewhere else because you're like, it's so bad here, I got to take my chance on this boat. And you just head out in the ocean and hope that this captain's going to get you there at some point. Sometimes they didn't make it, you know. But you hope that, that this is going to turn into something. Then you show up at this land that you may be turned around from just because maybe you have pink eye or something like that. I mean, you hear these stories about stuff that happened, and it's like, holy crap. But every time they had to go, yeah, we're just going to get on the ship and see what happens well, and hope for the best because it's got to be better than what we're leaving. Yeah, you know what? It's like my parents went out with that big dream. Yeah. I did. But you know what? Another but your funny, dad was, I mean, that was, that was your dad's life. Another, it was, but there's another side story to the whole thing when we went on the trip. We became celebrities in our own right as a family because my dad built that sailboat. It was a big deal. And by the time we made it down to down the Mississippi River from Chicago through the locks 
into the Mississippi River, down into the Gulf of Mexico, and then around Florida over to Miami land so the sailboat could await the one thing my father didn't build, which was her masts. Those were built by a company in New Zealand custom for our boat. And the masts had to be constructed and shipped over to the U.S. and then erected on the sailboat. That's when she became a sailboat. But um, when we did that, my living in Florida for that last bit of time before we set to sea as a green sailing family mm-hmm. to go see the world, um, we caught the eye somehow of a movie company that wanted to make a film with my family. So they actually started a film comp- production company called Seafest Films, and Seafest Films was going to send a camera crew with my family to sail around the world to do the story of my family, basically my parents escaping Hungary, coming here with nothing, and then living the American dream only to take the American dream as your definition of it and build, design and build your own sailboat from the drafting table up to the finished product and sail it around the world. You know, so it's like uh, we were going to do that, and the movie crew goes with us and a producer. And we left Miami land on the 4th of July. When when we first did our shakedown cruise, it was the 4th of July. I I don't recollect exactly when it was in the 70s. Um, But mid-70s, right after Star Wars, I think, something. uh, Star Wars was 77. Yeah, so it's probably been like 78 or something, 78, 79, when we we sail out. It's like to go around and see the world. And when we did that, we left on the 4th of July and we'd go sailing away from the U.S. at the coast of Florida, and by the time night comes, because we left in the morning, by the time night comes, you know, Florida's still over there, basically on the horizon, you know, or just over it, and you see the fireworks show. Hmm. The Miami land fireworks just all up the coast of Florida. And so we sail away, 4th of July bash, sailing away like that, which was a really neat thing to see at sea. All the fireworks blowing With the film off, crew? You know. Huh? With the film crew? Yeah. You know, we had a film crew with us. But, um, what have, but the, the movie was never to happen for a different reason. Because my father was also an animal. He was a very dark side. Uh, I don't know what happened to him. You know, it's like uh, he was abused, not by his father, but by his mother, who's the person who abused him. And she messed my dad up. You know, my dad was a horror story in his own right. There's a very dark side of all of her trip, which I haven't even mentioned yet. But um, in context, it's an interesting point to introduce it here because we had a film crew with us. And we didn't even know it. I was going to have a movie made around about me and him. We all had T-shirts that were embroidered, given to us, you know, and silkscreen Seafest films. It looked like a like Seafest wrist right here, and the the F in in uh, Seafest was used as films going down. Mm-hmm. They had already had all this production stuff designed, you know, as how they were going to uh, market the film, and uh, and that was a production shirt for family and crew members, you know, and the, and the camera crew and all those people that were working on the film. So they go with us to the maiden voyage from Miami to Bermuda, and the most incredible thing happened. We're three days out, and now you no longer see land. It's long gone, and you're not even seeing the light from land. When at nighttime, we witnessed a rocket launching from Canaveral. Really? The rocket launched off. Yeah, I have to talk to my mom sometime. She really put some contradiction, so to speak, to some of the ways I tell the story because she's getting old. Yeah. And her mind is in some ways, you know, she remembers a lot of things, but she 
we have some fundamental disagreements about the same chain of events, the same things happen, but how they happen and the reasons why some of them happen, we might differ about sometimes. Because oh, yeah. Of perspective, you know, and she's getting, she's in her 80s now, mid-80s. Well, everybody's memory and perspectives change all change. I mean... But, uh, you know, what, what happens, man, is this rocket launches. Yeah. We see this blister of light you know, way in the distance, far away, you know, it's like you're not hearing it, you're not, you're just seeing this flicker of thin light, bright, like a candle, shooting up into the heavens. It was obvious what it was. And we're all excitedly on the deck of the boat, you know, in the cockpit, looking at this rocket launch from our stern off the coast of what's obviously Canaveral, where it launched from, as we're heading on north by northeast towards Bermuda, mm-hmm. which is, you know, off the Carolinas coast, out in the Atlantic there. Yeah. So as we're heading that way, um, suddenly that rocket gets up into, uh, I guess, the stratosphere or whatever, <laughs> where the first booster separated, mm-hmm. and big explosion of light, and then you see the booster separate from this and the flames continuing, but there's this other ball of fire that gets dimmer and dimmer but stays on fire. Mm-hmm. And starts coming back to Earth. Mm-hmm. The most incredible thing, and then you know, what are the odds of this? We started getting a little bit nervous because, believe it or not, Josh, the booster section came to us. <laughs> Instead of getting lighter and lighter and fading out, <laughs> a ball of fire got brighter and brighter and brighter until like, it became. Oh crap! It's coming towards us. It's coming towards us. And so imagine going on your maiden voyage. We're cursed. <laughs> it's pretty much is what I kind of worried about there in hindsight. I was thinking, man, with the things that happened to us, maybe we were in some ways. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it was. I think we were in some ways um, bad luck because of my father, I blame him, you know, for what it was his. It was his stuff that he did that destroyed the family, you know, and got us a lot of problems. And his arrogance as a sailor, wannabe sailor, taking a family out to sea with a vessel that he built. What could go sail- wrong? Well, a lot can go wrong when you don't have a lifeboat. Yeah. Now, who the heck goes out for an oceanic crossing without a lifeboat? It looked good on paper, you know? Uh, you, you see, there's, there's a brilliant person can make the most dim-witted of mistakes. I'm and sure he's drawing it all up going, having a lifeboat, eh, nothing could go wrong. We'll be fine. I can think of a lot of times that a lifeboat would have really, really helped us out. Yeah. But uh, it's like... Uh, this rocket is coming, the, the booster section is coming back down towards us. And it looked like we were going to possibly be struck. It looked real serious, like we were going to meet our fate to a booster from whatever rocket was launched. Mm. And it came down, and it was only as it was coming down towards us, eventually you sighing a sigh of relief because you could notice that its trajectory was going to not come straight on us, but maybe just hit a few feet off to the side of the boat. Well, that few feet turned out to be maybe 100 yards, 150 yards. Mm. Now, you think from a low orbit yeah, to your sailboat on the surface of the Atlantic Ocean, a minuscule speck that they can't see. Yeah. Uh, and if you were in the base station, if you were using a telescope, you might be able to see a sailboat on the surface if the weather permitted, but you sure as heck aren't going to see it. That's the crazy thing. When you watch those those videos of the the space shuttle taking off and all the debris falling, you're like, yeah, where's it falling? Occasionally, I would imagine some of it has to hit something. Yeah. You know, but, you know, yeah. that's, if that's, you know, if some people would argue it like this, Josh, if you believe in God, you know, and you can say, you know, live your life without, within reason, live it without fear under the belief that, you know what, God's got my back, I'm, I'm living in faith of the Lord, whatever. 
I'll, my time is my time to go. Mm-hmm. Some people have that thought. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. What I'm getting at. So it's like it wasn't our time to go. This booster ball of fire is coming down, lighting up the sky around us dimly, not too bright. Bright enough that you saw it the whole time in the clear sky. And when it got down towards us and we realized it's not going to hit us, when it finally hit the ocean off to our side, it suddenly was sputtered out with a big cloud of steam rising out of the ocean right there where it first hit the water. And um, I wonder how much was, debris is in the ocean from stuff like that. Oh, you, you come across objects you would not believe. You know, outside of uh, major ports and stuff all around the world, there are these giant channel markers. There's pieces of uh, industrial equipment that belong to mines or pieces of ships. There's occasionally I've seen a lot of ship debris at various times being on boats. Being around lifeboats and and actual ships, we like, found a lifeboat one time. We've seen we've seen ships left abandoned that that end up as debris on on you know coastlines and stuff like that from, yeah, uh, from yeah, just yeah. being it's on like vacation. A, yeah, there's a there's lots of stuff, man. One of the one of the most you know in, in you can Charleston, see. There, there's a bunch of ships there that are, that were left, and they end up eventually being crashed up against the shore because for whatever well, they reason they ran break aground or something. They're probably some not. of them are just anchored and left. Oh, really? really? And so, yeah. nobody claims them. Nobody wants to claim them for whatever well, reason. You could probably, I would say, just by my experience at sea and knowing how people are, because, you know, they don't just let you anchor anywhere and yeah. whatnot. You probably have some ships. Now, a ship would prefer in all in all, all times. A ship doesn't want to be at land during a big storm. You, if, you, if you're in a vessel, if you're maritime, if you are in a huge storm, you do not want to be in a harbor. Necessarily, unless it's a very well, yeah, because the water's rubber. moving and you're going to get slapped up against you, things yeah, that you are fixed. Be, you want to be out far from the land, yeah. So there's no chance of being crashed on the bottom as a wave comes by and you hit the bottom with or on docks or other or boats pushed into the wall. Anchor breaks, hold. Well, the thing that happened in uh, in Tokyo with the um, oh that tsunami with the tsunami, show, yeah, where they show how the water, the land is fixed. rises up, so the water when it surges and then it the moves boat's in, coming over to yeah, seawall and yeah, everything road. moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, suddenly your parking garage just inserted a freighter. Of course, there's also the terrifying thought of being like the ship in uh, the Cape Fear movie. Is it Cape Fear? No, Perfect oh, Storm. Perfect Storm. No, that's a different. That's story a terrifying situation where there's I've like there. fifty foot, sixty foot there. waves. I cannot watch that movie. I have PTSD. Yeah. If I see that film, it will. That's so y'all been through some waves like that, where it's just. I've been in seventy foot seas. Where uh, we, we went. We went vertical, and we were gonna. We caps the vessel almost capsized completely. We were thrown on our side. The masts were in the water, going underwater. Whew. And uh, we were goners. Water was coming in, and it, that, that's that's a total story in its own right too. It's but, but the the deal is, man, is you go up in a wave like that, we're trying to pull sail down. You have a jib in the front of the vessel. That's your, your biggest sail that you carry is a jib. Mm-hmm. That's in the front. Big pull force on a catch, you know, off the main mast to the bowsprit. Big triangle sail. I got to ride on a on a sailing ship out of uh, Portland, Maine. A sailing through... ship. What kind of vessel was it? I don't a square rigger. When you say a ship, I don't remember. It was a wooden. It was a wooden sailboat. Um, they can have like a one of my dad's sail like this. Which, one of my dad's wives was somehow hooked up with uh, the Sheridan Hotel Group, and they had commissioned a boat as part of an outrigger group that was going to do. How big was the boat? Do you think seventy, eighty feet? Oh yeah, it's a small wooden um, sloop or a schooner. You know, I think it was a schooner. We were on top, and. You know, it's for my first time ever being on a sailboat. I think I was a teenager at the time, maybe thirteen or so. And 
you know, I, we just hung on as tight as we could and they, they would bring out the sails and I don't know any of the terms or anything, but we hauled ass in the water and I was thinking the whole time I'm grabbing on this thing, I'm thinking, Oh, this is the part where I die. Oh, how about that? This is, <laughs> I just came along for this yeah. fun little tour we're going to do and, and now we're going to die because the ship is completely this way. You know, and we're hanging with, with oh, just, yeah, you're sailing at an angle, you're tacking. Yeah, yeah so we're, right. we're just hanging on with holding on to these ropes with our hands, and I'm completely off the ship. I mean, my, just my body weight holding on to these ropes, and I'm thinking, oh, this is probably where we die. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah, this man. is great. You, 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 that's, let me tell you something, oh, man. When you're in a boat, remember I said um, what, the, what it's like, what it's like psychologically on a person when you're sailing, like the RV comparison. Now, you can't get out of the RV, and you really have nothing to see except the interior and yeah. what you're seeing on the horizon. Which is exciting and a lot of work. You don't get to sleep more than 30, 45 minutes usually at a time on a small crew because the wind direction changes. You have to tack. You might see a ship which is on the intersect course. The weather changes. Whatever happens, you're always having to wake up the crew to help change sail configuration on deck while the helmsman, you know, you're by yourself on the helm, you're not going to do that on a big boat. You, you have to hold the wheel. We didn't have uh, autopilot. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're holding the helm you're going to hold the helm and when you start looking at your compass and the wind is changing direction if you want to stay on course you have to adjust sails some of them you can do from the cockpit but if the wind speed changes you might have to take some sail area down i was on helm duty on that such trip when i had to do that one time we ended up in 70 foot seas the daytime turned to night night Mm. the only light was lightning flashes Mm. terrifying but there you are trying to pull the biggest sail you have on there because the wind is so strong. My dad didn't want to reef the sails. Reefing is shortening their kite lengths, bringing down most of the sails so you have less surface area taking the wind, and that way it's safer for the boat. Mm. Instead, he had to leave that full sail configuration up, and we got caught in a bad gale, mm. bad storm. You go in there, 70-foot seas form, turns dark as night from like 2 in the afternoon. Just black. Can't see anything except for lightning flashes. And me and my dad are on deck, and my mom's trying to hold Escapade into the wind. Go up a wave. You're going up a wave, and while we're going up, by hand, we are desperately trying to pull the sail down mm-hmm. while we're going up. Because you're standing on the bowsprit of the vessel, and you have that gravity holding you to the bowsprit as you're going up. Because when you get to the top of the wave, it's all over with. You go over the top of the wave, and we would drop like a roller coaster falling out. I'm sure as you're going down, you're seeing the next wave come towards you. Yes. Like and a so giant what you building. you do is you let go of the sail and you grab the rail and the cables on you, next to you on the bowsprit and you see the bottom of that wave suddenly a lightning flashes and you see this, you know it's coming and the bowsprit would go into the water and go underwater and we would suddenly have to hold our breath and hold on with... Because it's like a bobber night. at that point, basically. It, the boat comes out quick. Yeah. But that first initial touch on the other thing there before that happens, man, and starts lifting again. Yeah. And you start immediately as you're gasping for air from where you held your breath. Trying to pull the sail, the sail down. And let me tell you, my father and I went through that. And uh, boy, boy, was I angry at him at that point. Oh, I bet. Because uh, I had just gone to sleep. And I warned him um, that I woke him up and said, you know, look, my, my shift is off. And I was exhausted. I said, my shift is over with. I need to get some sleep. And so I hit a buzzer, which went to his cabin. You know, the captain's cabin there and buzzed him to wake up him and my mom and get him up on deck so I could be relieved. And I said, by the way, there's a storm on the horizon. Before I go to sleep, we need to reef the sails. Black smudge on a nice sailing day. 
And he said, no, that's nothing. It's just a squall. Well, that thing turned day into night and was the most, one of the most vicious storms, you know, storm savage as I could ever imagine. So it was such a traumatic experience. I went to sleep, and like 30 minutes later after I was asleep, I was on the high side of the boat just tacking. Mm-hmm. So in my cabin, which was on the port side, and at that time the way we were sailing, is up in the air over the water line in my bed with a hammock that you stretch over to the wall and hook up so you don't roll out of the bed and fall. Yeah. Well, that hammock is what woke me up. It broke loose from the wall when we were totally laid over, caught under full sail, mm. laid over on our side, masked in the water, and I got thrown into my door. Crunch, I wake up, seeing a flash of light, broke the door out, and the water's coming in through the hall. The vessels laid on the side were sinking. And I was like, my God, I thought it was over with. I had yeah. to crawl into, you know, you know, how, you know how the hallway is in a single white trailer? Yeah. That's basically the, the size of it. You said hey, 15 feet. In a trailer, 15 go, hey, feet is your widest. That's about as wide yeah. as a single wide trailer. People, you know how when you're in a trailer, one of the funny questions you can always ask, at least I thought it was funny because I'd say to somebody, hey, can I use your restroom? And they would tell me where it is, you know, and it's like, and it's like I laughed when I'd asked that because it's like, where it's can you go? Like you you look directions. down this little single yeah. wide trailer, it's like going through the hall of escapade, approaching my cabin, same kind of size feel, you know, and you barely fit through the hall. Old trailer, you know, and it's like... Uh, I had to crawl on my hands and knees to get out of the boat through that turned horizontal, but was vertical. I hear people and talk about things like the multiverse, and I think about stuff like this, and I go, hey, there's one version of me that died then. Yeah, absolutely. You know what the neat thing to mention about that is? Is that there's something that we all share. It's like you either got it or you don't. And I think everyone does have it, but it's how you're raised around it. Mm-hmm. And that's the to survive. Yeah. You know, when you have to talk about fear, there's a lot of things you can say about sailing, which which are indicative of, of the reality of what it's like. And it's this day, it's probably like that. I don't think it would be any different. Um, if anything, it's more dangerous today in many ways than it was when we did it because of the shipping traffic, the amount of ships, the super highways on the ocean. They cut straight. Oh, yeah. You're sailing across one of those highways, you're quite a pedestrian in your little 80-foot sailboat. Yeah. They'll go over you, and they won't even know they hit you. They could kill you like Not that. only shipping containers, but even, you know, military ships nowadays are just giant cities. Yeah, they got, yeah and they said they're big, but then it's like uh, those those ships that are doing the shipping on the shipping lanes Yeah, uh, for products. Oh, yeah. I've seen them down in ships, Charleston. Those things are ridiculous. They autopilot on. They yeah. have sat-nav, and they're supposed to have somebody awake at all times on the bridge, but I understand that can be a little boring of a job. Sometimes those guys fall asleep. And if you're at nighttime... Even if you have your navigation lights on and you see a vessel coming and it's an intersect course and you're going to have a possible collision, if you were to fall asleep on your sailboat and keep going like that, one of those ships is not going to even necessarily notice you. Even if they hit you, they wouldn't even know it. They, they, they might hear a sound, boom, you know, on the hull for one second. For a second. <laughs> you know, what was that? Be, I don't know. <laughs> they might get some scratches and a few dents, but they'll yeah. put you under. Yeah. And so, so what happens is, is like, you know, we were, when, when you have the fear thing, what I was saying is that, you know, when you suddenly get a storm, you suddenly realize that there's, you have no choice. You're on a boat. Mm-hmm. There is no choice. There's no choice to make. It's scary. If you never experienced it before, it's terrifying. But that terrifying thing, it's got to be similar to a soldier who goes into combat in many ways. You know, they, they say that soldiers hesitate sometimes to shoot back yeah. when they're first fired upon, if they've never been to combat before. It's disbelief, I think. Yeah, it's like a shock. Of the is this real? Whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it's surreal, and you just don't know how to react because you've never yeah. been there before. It's a virgin experience. So, you know, what is it? What is the movie uh, Black Hawk Down? The guy says, man, they're shooting at me. They're shooting at me. Well, shoot back. Yeah. You know? And it's like, well, here you are facing a storm, and when you get into it, you're scared. Your adrenaline pumps. Mm-hmm. You are 
You're not going to go to the bathroom if you have to go to the bathroom. You still go to the bathroom, but you're not going to make it to a bathroom. It's going to happen on you. Yeah. You're not going to even think about it. You're, up, you're, you're sitting there holding the helm or cranking a winch or fighting for the survival of the ship. Instinct turns over. It takes over everything, and you no longer have time to be scared. You become a, an adrenaline-amped It's all endorphins. All endorphins, and you're just there to survive. And you taste like salt because there's never a moment on a sailboat where you don't get... If it's not raining, you have dried salt on you. If it's raining, the rain never comes enough to get the salt off you because ocean waves are going to still strike and put more salt on you. And salt is dripping off the mast and the sails onto you. And so your skin is always feeling salt dried out and lotion, cracked. Cracked in the lips and stuff like yeah. that, you know, and you always taste salt. And it's like, a, it's a pretty... Every pretty time you lick your lips or blink your eyes or rub your eyes, you're like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. All, a lot of that stuff happens, you know, and it's Jeez. like... Uh, but there we are in the sailboat fighting the storm. And in that circuit, when, when the boat laid over, I woke up from my sleep having to escape the boat, thinking it was over with. with yeah. All of our adventures and everything that had happened, I thought, yeah. this is finally it. We're going down. The water's already rushing past me inside the boat. And it's dark, not a light on. And I know my way out of the boat. And so I start getting into that hall, and I start making my way to the right to get to the uh, companionway in the uh, helm's room. We had a helm's room, navigation room underneath the cockpit. And um, as we're, I'm heading that way, suddenly lightning flashes. And that's my first glimpse that it's not night. I had no idea that it wasn't. Yeah, because you were asleep. I was asleep, and I woke up, you know, and it's like it's dark. Yeah. And I'm trying to get out of the rushing water that's coming in through the companionway, which is now a formerly vertical aspect of the vessel, even if it's leaning over from tacking, to now horizontal completely. And the water's coming in, and I see the lightning flash, and you can see like a waterfall or a fountain coming through the cockpit. You're just, just destroying the interior with with ocean water, you know, and... I make it to the cockpit, and I'm crawling out, and my mom is standing in front of me on the side of the deck house, holding onto the wheel of the boat, and the boat's laid on its side, and I climb out, you know, and it's like we're, you know, we're going down. It's like the only thing you think. I look over, and the lightning flashes again, and you can see our sails and our masts in the ocean, in you know, where the vessel got laid there, and we're just getting pushed by the seas and like, but it was a, it was pretty amazing. Escapade had another keel. She was a full-length keel, not a dagger keel that you have on sailboats, but actually from the bow of the boat, a gradual slope down to the deepest point of the vessel at the stern by the rudder near the back of the vessel, just shy of the rear, um, and behind the mizzen mast. You know, it's what makes it a catch. But it's like um, there's a big rudder there, then the keel's eight feet deep, and the keel on Escapade was made with its ballast built into the keel, solid steel plate on the bottom of the vessel. And the ballast was put into there very securely into the uh, hull there. So Escapade, out of all odds, that water dumped out of her sail. And over a period there, the waves are rocking us, and we're on our side. It was almost like the hand of God or something came and just suddenly... Just turned you over. The sails started dumping water, and Escapade's weight on her keel starts countering, and the vessel's facing into the wind. The sails, for a moment, aren't catching wind, which would just push you back down sideways. And that's when we suddenly have to get the sails down because you're full sail and the vessel gets pushed into the wind, going up a mast, gets righted, but then the sails are loose, flapping like this. Was your brother with you during this time? No, he'd already been... So this is just you, your mom, and your dad? Yeah, yeah, we were sailing. By that time, we were returning to the U.S. after years at sea. And um, 
we were actually off the coast of the Carolinas when that happened. That storm, we were sailing from St. Thomas and the U.S. Virgin Islands to bring. See, up you could the have day. been eating chicken nuggets, and <laughs> <laughs> I could have been eating chicken nuggets. I tried one time. I remember the legend. I remember shopping for husky pants with I me. <laughs> I, I was a skinny. I was a skinny brat, man. I was like a little skinny kid, man. Because you didn't have you, chicken nuggets. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, I'd say, you know what? It's funny because McDonald's. They even have the McDonald's story, man. But it's like I had not seen a McDonald's, Josh, for years. Yeah, I was like I, those golden arches. I mean, that was like, to me, that was like good sex right now. You know, I'm like, sure after the storm, like all of you had to be like, what the hell are we doing? This is ridiculous. Well, I mean, there were times you thought that. I didn't, by that time, man, I was starting to get old enough, man, where I was starting to have enough experience with my parental problems because my father was abusive. The, their marriage was breaking apart. My dad was violent, you know, and he was a tyrant. And he was like a Captain Bly. And so, I mean, in some ways I had benefited from a lot of things that he's taught me. And, uh... Most certainly, it took me for it, it. It took me outside of my age group to find people to even communicate with. Because when I arrived here in South Carolina, I, I, I hadn't. One thing I didn't have, Josh, was I wasn't a kid. Yeah, I'd been robbed of my childhood in a lot of ways, having to do adult responsibilities from helm duty from a young age on, and all the things that go with maintaining a sailboat. The work that goes into well, that. you were basically a pirate, and, and you no, were suddenly introduced to suburbia. Yeah, a lot, a lot of work, you know, a lot of work, you know, and it's like, uh, and, and then I didn't get socialized the same way as you would if you were in school. Communication had to be totally different. Yeah, the, was, the ideas of society yeah, was different. On one side, I'm on a collegiate level. Yeah, and then, uh, and then on the other side, uh, when I came back here to the U.S., I had been deprived of a childhood, and I was when I ran away from my dad, I came ended up here in South Carolina over time. Very, you know, quickly. Um, but when I did come back from out of the country, where I ran from my sailboat, where it was me and my father at the time, it was right for my 17th birthday, I think, right around that time, or right after um, that, I ran away from him and swam to shore half a mile away, snuck off the boat. Jeez. I was terrified. I thought I was going to get eaten by a shark, but I made that swim for freedom. And uh, That's a long way. Let me tell you something. It, was, it looks so close, but it's a I long it way. Every single time I swam, you know, because I almost got killed by a shark off the Carolinas. That's another thing. I was almost eaten by a shark when we were sailing by the Carolinas on that same storm trip, approaching Norfolk, Virginia. When we were off the Carolinas here, I almost became the victim of a 23-footer, which uh, was an oceanic white tip shark. I think the breed standard is supposed to be like 19 feet at the max, but... This was much bigger than that. It came right alongside the sailboat, and I barely got out of the water before I would have been dead. And um, it, I never went back in the ocean water again for years and years and years because it so uh, scarred me, what I, what almost happened to me. But anyway, going back to the boat like that, you know, it's like we were, when we were sailing off here and we were in that storm to this day, you know, um, I mean, if, if I were to see that movie, A Perfect Storm, yeah. I, I walked into that movie by accident at a friend's place here. I don't remember what year, and I didn't even know. You know, They were dark in their living room, and they were playing a movie, and I think I just got there with some other friends or something and was walking in. They are all watching a movie in the dark in their living room, and it was that scene. Lightning, dark. Lightning, Waves dark, as giant as you could see. Lightning, dark, and there was this TV showing these heavy seas, and I'm mm-hmm. suddenly fixated on this big screen television showing that. You know, and I'm like, I suddenly see that, and then it's like a flashback. And then suddenly, it's exactly what it was. It suddenly, uh, and like they showed the ship when she died, when they were lost, and stern up, mm-hmm. and the stern comes up like that, and you go vertical on a on a uh, wave wall. 
you never put your ass to a storm. You don't sail downwind. You sail into a storm. That's a sailor's creed. You face the weather. If you don't do that, that rule goes in life. The second you turn your tail towards it, you've exposed your uh, vulnerability, and a vessel is not made to take it from the rear. Mm. So it's like uh, you will. Well, if you want to die, go ahead and go ahead and go downwind in a storm. You know, it's like very difficult to even steer your sailboat when you're coming down a wave like that, surfing with the wind behind you. The it makes the vessel want to turn left, turn right, and doesn't want to go straight. You know, it's like a very difficult uh, circumstance. But when I saw that in that movie, I don't know what happened to me, but just suddenly everything, I don't know if it was lightning flash or suddenly the terror seeing that, suddenly everything went white and I was out on the floor in La La Land thinking I was in a storm, gone, just like that. I know it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine time or hard to, hard to think about time, but... From the moment you woke up on that ship, how long do you think that storm lasted? Was it hours? Was it No, I think it was probably quick? more like about 45 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes of increase of just total hell. The longest storm uh, was the one that we were rescued at sea the first time when yeah. uh, Escapade was damaged. We were almost pushed onto the rocks of Algiers, Africa. We're going to have to do that one at a different time, though. Yeah, it's a different time, but, you know... That, we're almost, that we're almost two hours. My computer oh, right really? now... Yeah, my... Yeah, I mean, I can't believe blabbing like this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's been fun, you know. It's like, it's amazing, you know. It, it, we can do more of these, and I mean, I, I yeah. definitely want to talk to you more about it because it's fascinating, but oh, I kind of... I haven't even arrived back to America yet, you know, and I think that, you know, you talk about your life like that, I've been blessed, you know, my whole yeah. family has, you know, and it's like, I think there's so many things... It's like I said, those big circles, and there's something incredible about the way it comes around. And, and, and so I started believing, man, that, you know, there's, you have a purpose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, and it's like I've got, boy, it's unbelievable. You know, but I look at it, and so I'm very grateful that I'm still alive today, you know, and I think, you know, I've accomplished a few things, and then I've failed in other things, and had the hardships that we all face in life. And then I still find myself trying to remember that, you know what, there's another adventure fixing to happen. Yeah. There's something that I just don't even know about. And with me, that's a big deal because adventures in my family, they're not nothing. They're pretty monumental. They're, they're monumental adventures. They're, they're, yeah. stuff, they're the stuff that, uh, you know, they're historic. They're, they're something which is just like pushes you to the threshold always. You know? Well, they say that everything, you know, the, there's an old saying that, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. And that everything that you're faced against is just another step towards teaching you the next thing you're supposed to face. Right. Like it, it all helps build your resilience, and it helps build your knowledge of, of what you can endure, what you're willing to endure, what you are can put up with, and what you can't. And hopefully, right. along the way, you learn to survive. Like you said, that fear instinct, that that survival instinct, takes over. But every step of the way is is just knowledge to help you face the next piece of adversity that you thought you wouldn't be able to yeah, to yeah. handle before. And you know, when you're talking about things like Mother Nature with waves and stuff, you had no control of that. You had, you know, you. Is is something really that's just it's bigger than the man versus man type you know confrontations. Yeah, that's why I have an opposition. Some people think it's crazy. That's why I have an opposition towards all this global warming yeah. stuff. Well, I'll tell you, when Earth is ready to, yeah, when Mother Nature change, decides that's it, spit us it's off. it. Yeah, and I don't think that we can do as much with our Earth as a volcano erupting. Yeah, the amount of toxic ash and everything that it puts into the atmosphere is more pollutant. Then now, I'm not saying that we aren't changing the world in our own ways. We devastate everything as humanity's secondary trait 
is to always use the resources and use the resources, yeah. destroy things, make something for the advancement of man turns out to be something which kills man. You know, yeah. it's like so it happens, you know, but but every step of this is just knowledge for yeah. the next thing. You know, one of the ideas when I started this stupid podcast was I wanted to build community. I wanted to be able to have people come together and talk about their stories, talk about their life, talk about whatever. I named it stuff I heard because it could literally be someone hearing a conversation from someone else and going, you know what I heard? I heard this thing on this podcast. And, you know, to me, the Internet is a resource that we could use to help each other enrich our lives through community and and through sharing. And You know, exactly in line with what you just said right there. I I, I concur. I agree 100% because I've learned in my life one of the most valuable lessons I think I've ever learned is to never predict. You can never predict. You'll never know when it's going to happen, Josh. You could brush across the most insignificant of people in your own mind, someone, something that you'd never thought yeah. would even affect you. And it can be one action from one person which forever changes your world. Um, I've experienced things like that too, and it's like it happens. You see, you have to be, you know, and someone will say something that will suddenly make you think of a thought, a higher thought, which changes the way you looked at things in mm-hmm. life, period. And it can be a monumental change. Or it could be something which is just fate, or somebody who's uh, sick could come and destroy your life, and or you know wreck you. Yeah. You know, and you were just on the way over to meet your family for dinner. Yeah. You never know. So those things are influences. Yeah. And they happen around us, and so sharing information is always the way to go. But I'd like to have you on here again to talk about more of this stuff. Yeah, um, I'd, lo- I'd love I, to. Do I, it, I feel kind of weird about wrapping this up now, but I've, I've actually never. I mean, I've done a couple that are around this time, but and right now people are like, Jesus, I got to pee. It's two hours, blah, 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 you know, yeah, whatever. Like, <laughs> but, well, you know what? I had a really good time doing it, man. Yeah. I'd love to come back. And uh, it's like, uh, I hope that, uh, I don't know, you do, you, I see, because I don't know nothing about your podcast, man, because I live in this little uh, bubble of life right now where I don't even have the internet. I've got access to it because of my cell phone technology, but, you know. Oh, I've, so, got, I've got tens of listeners out there that. first in the Gimme Gimme. You ever heard yeah. of the band? They yeah. have this one thing and they say, you know, right now, we have dozens of fans all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get to see analytics, and there are people all over the world that listen to this, and I, it, it's really amazing to me. But, you know, I, I guess it's through technology and people sharing and finding it in different ways and, and whatnot. But, you know, I figure there's no rule takers. There's nobody saying that you have to follow certain guidelines. There's nobody saying that you can't create anything. Literally, with, with the Internet right now, you can do anything. And I try yeah. to tell other people, I'm not pulling off a magic trick. I'm doing what anybody can do. And so along this path, you know, I'm trying to also get people involved and do their own. So that's yeah, cool. You it's know, really cool. And it's like, and then, like you said too, man, it's a way for people to share, not share knowledge, you know, and an ability for us as human beings around the world to somehow evolve past the chaos that we have in today's reality is to understand each other as human beings. And we have a lot of similarities, even yep. with the differences, you know, so I think it's really cool to, whenever you can, to reach out. And I sometimes feel bad for people that don't do that. Yeah, you know that don't get away. You know, getting out there and leaving your house or your neighborhood, your hometown, and taking a backpack, whatever it is you're going to do, and finding your own sailboat and hitting it. I think that's a really smart thing to do in your life. If life is about the journey, and your journey basically creates a tapestry of your life, I mean, you've lived an incredible tapestry so far. I've had had an incredible. I mean, holy cow! But God takes me tomorrow, man. I I know it. I know it. I know it. If God takes most people never travel. Most people never travel 50 miles from where they live. Really? They never yeah, travel 50 miles from where they live. I've done more than Columbus and Magellan yeah. and yeah. and all them people combined. You know, it's like, uh, it's like, it's, 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 I'm pretty lucky. I know that, you know. But then I've learned also 
That's another story I'll tell that book. You know where luck comes from. That'll have to be what we talk about. That's a neat story from Florence. I'm wearing my lucky shirt today, by the way. You are wearing a lucky shirt. So <laughs> I will hint. Which is a joke in itself. I will hint. I, I was I totally expecting incredible. to spill something on it the first day I had it on. And I was like, that'd be, that'd be fitting if I spill something on this shirt. Yeah. I'd wear it every day if I did, because I'd yeah, be like, well, yeah, this is what happens. You don't. I, I heard a different story about luck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it happened here in Florence. And I'm not going to go into it now, because I think that uh, maybe that'll be something we can just uh, mention on if oh, yeah. this again, man. But I'll write it a down. Good story about luck. I'll write it you down. Know, and what happened here in Florence was a shocker. Yeah. And it's not to blame on Florence, but I'm just saying you never know when something's going to affect you. Yeah. And you never know where it comes from. And sometimes it's not cool. It can be good, and it can be evil. And the world is filled with both. Yeah. You know. So it's like uh, I've had some incredible things happen. But well, hey, man, I'm going to wrap this up for now. Um, Thanks for having Thank me. you for being a guest on my 200th episode. Uh, I'll get you information on how to listen to this kind of crap. Episode, and be on. Yeah. Another 200th story, too, yeah. we got to go over. And I got you a, I got you a shirt oh, that's cool, you can man. take with you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, hey everybody! Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. I was wearing one glove. Does that make me? Ron's a the, bit? the 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 Michael Jackson of the uh, podcast. Apparently, he's wearing one glove. Trying to be half as safe as I was before. Half as safe, you know. <laughs> Only using the left hand. See, he's got the <laughs> like a stranger. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, and be part of the community. If you got something you want to ask Ron a question, send me a message, and I'll I'll you know pass that along and we'll uh, attempt yeah. to answer it on the next one but uh you know i wanted to have you on again to just do like a background origin story i had no idea the information i was going to get is really incredible um yeah it's like we haven't scratched the surface man that's what's fun yeah. about it you know it's like uh, i don't want to go on a big humdinger but uh and like brag about myself but if you want to talk stuff man i've got yeah. a big plethora of stuff to talk about yeah so thank you everybody for being a part of this um you know stick around for more i'm going to keep doing this as long as you guys keep listening Uh, Take care. And uh, as always, I end this by saying, cue the cow. Aloha.